You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Michael. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I can't complain. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Michael Brooks, uh, also available through a number of avenues. That's true. Host of the, the, the Michael Brooks Show. You're a, a regular on the Majority Report. I gather you've got something going broadcast-wise now with Jacobin, and I don't know what else. Tell us, wh- And then we're going to talk about your new book. Against the web, which, uh, as we record this, will, will come out in a couple of days. It'll, it'll be out by the time this airs. So what, what else are you up to? So first and foremost, uh, Michael Brooks show. That's true. That's, that's the home base. Uh, and then I, and then we just launched the show. Just the second episode came out this last Saturday with Anna Kasparian and I weekends with Anna Kasparian and Michael Brooks for the Jacobin YouTube channel. She is and- famous for the Young Turks. Yeah, she's, she's fantastic. We're really good friends and we've been looking for a way to, uh, collaborate. I mean, we go, you know, I do that show. She does my show a lot, but, but we wanted to do something else and it came together with Jacobin. So cool. Uh, so people can find you almost anywhere. They can just almost yeah. randomly open Basically. up a window on their computer. I'm not even plugging the for It's, yeah, it's a lot. I, I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so. You've got this book, Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. The web in question is the intellectual dark web. Right. Um, the, uh, I don't, just in, in case there's somebody out there who needs to have the, the IDW explained to them, what's your capsule summary of what the intellectual dark web is? I mean, I should say, by way of full disclosure, I have myself written critical things about the intellectual dark web. And this, your book is a critical thing about the intellectual dark web. So, but, but how do you describe the web to people who may not know? Uh, well, if I wasn't so busy, I would have gotten the book out uh, in 2019 or 18 when they were still more relevant. But, uh, <laughs> let me, uh, let me say that, uh, no, I, a sort of self, a, a branding exercise. Some people get very, uh, heated when you use that term. I, I think they were first described that way by Barry Weiss or maybe amongst themselves. I don't, I don't, I think they themselves say it kind of tongue in cheek. And I, you know, and it's, it's not the most, it's not like a sort of secret fraternal order or something, but, um, a confederation of public, you know, I guess people generally in our sphere intellectual public intellectual types podcasters youtubers um who have some variance in their political uh, and ideological uh, thinking and approach but are very concerned about uh political correctness how it supposedly stifles culture 
the need for open inquiry in society. Um, I'd actually say what's interesting is I think those really are kind of the shared focal points because beyond that, there is some real, you know, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson have quite different worldviews, but there's a lot of home. And, and I, and I would say by start of a critique, I'll just say it briefly. I, I think, and as you'll, you know, if you read the book, it's not that I don't think that there's some truth to the criticisms that they level at the sort of, you know, liberal culture or whatever you want to call it. But I don't think that they, you know, themselves are exactly uh, practitioners of, um, of what they seem to be concerned about. Not consistently anyway. I, 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 consistently. I, I, I did write, I wrote a piece in, uh, in my non-zero newsletter about this uh, about a year ago, I guess. But if time permits, we'll get into that specific critique. But but yeah, they are. And of course, this was the sales pit. Maybe that's cynical a term. In fact, my job maybe here should be to play devil's advocate because I will so naturally fall in line with parts of your critique. Maybe I should resist that by always stepping in to defend them uh, when I can when I can muster that. So let me not. Uh, be so cynical as to call it a sales pitch. Let me just say that when Barry Weiss wrote about them favorably in the New York Times and really put them on the map, I mean, the, the term predated her piece, but pretty much very few people had heard about it. I gather that Eric Weinstein, a, a member of the IDW, had, and the closest thing to a, to a leader, I guess, in a way, um, had, yeah. he, he had been kind of brandishing the term. His brother, Brett, had, uh, had had gotten on the radar screen by being really pretty mercilessly, I think, um, harassed uh, at Evergreen State College or or whatever. Uh, yeah, Evergreen. Evergreen something. It is. A, yeah, no, I think you're it, right. It is Evergreen a public State. institution it's, of an alternative nature. It, it's it sort is of a, like Hampshire a, College in a public institution exactly. setting. It's, a, it's yeah. a small lefty liberal arts college, but it is a it is a state school and um he had uh, he he had taken some stand that put him on the wrong side of uh what um he might refer to as the social justice warriors and it had really gotten kind of ugly i mean you, you, i had him on my podcast we talked it through and and it was a, it was a it was he he was in a place i wouldn't have um wanted to be in terms of what came down on his head so anyway he and eric eric uh, I think was was kind of a leader. Barry Weiss comes out with this piece in the New York Times, identifies these various people: Christina Hoff Summers, um, like you said, Sam Harris. Uh, I guess she mentioned Dave Rubin, certainly Ben Shapiro. Uh, and <laughs> and you're right, there is a certain amount of ideological variation among them, and yet they have become known uh, as right wing in places such as the subtitle of your book. So maybe the question becomes, given that Brett Weinstein can say he supported Bernie Sanders, at least uh, in 2016, yeah. um, and and even Sam Harris is on some issues liberal, wh- why do you think it's fair to characterize them as part of the new right? Well, I don't look – you know, my, my conception of right and left politics, and I don't usually – in a lot of cases, I don't care to get so pedantic about these things, but I think in this, it's relevant. I, you know, I mean, to me, like the Democratic Party is not a left party, and that isn't a value judgment. I mean, just by any kind of global standard of politics, we're not talking about a left party. So, 
you know, yeah, I would, I'm sure that uh, Sam Harris, I would imagine, is going to vote against Trump. And I imagine he, and I know he's, you know, pro-choice and supports some kind of versions of progressive taxation. You know, to me, that does not a left make, uh, you know, uh, so that's the kind of broad answer to it. But I borrowed from uh, my friend Bashkar Sankara, who found the Jacobin magazine, and he has this really nice uh, train analogies, uh, which, you know, this, this can derail conversations very quickly. But if you, if you think of these as kind of, let's say they're almost uh, psychic, you know, these are not literal physical stations is how I'll put it. So let's try to not get lost in a debate about the nature of the Soviet Union or Hungary or whatever. I think these, these three examples he uses, I liked a lot, which is that there's uh, Finland station, which is, you know, Lenin going back to, to Russia before the revolution and just stipulate that this is a notion of, and, and, and certainly my broader read, not of the Soviet Union, but of Marx is that it's, it is in some ways a culmination of an enlightenment project to bring democracy to more spheres of life, including people's work and economic lives. That's a read that I have a lot of uh, sympathy to sympathy towards now, how that looks and how that's implemented, obviously is a whole other set of questions, but that's my uh, instinct. Uh, and so that, 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 that there is a politics that generally is pretty democratic oriented, uh, and, and has a, a degree of trust, like uh, CLR James, you know, every cook, a governor, I'm paraphrasing that, that sort of impulse. And then there's Singapore station and Singapore, obviously, I mean, a lot of people who want to emulate Singapore, frankly, don't do it as well as Singapore, but let's say Singapore is a stand in for a certain type of limited cosmopolitan. There is a certain type of functioning multiculturalism there, very competitive, uh, successful, uh, you know, global, economic force, especially for such a small place um, and a place that certainly has the reputation, maybe some of it a, a sales job, but I think some of it also very warranted as being a place that values um, meritocracy, talent, technical capacity. And I think what Bashkar was saying, which I generally agree with is that a lot of the, say the kind of, you know, neoliberal wing of the world's elite, are sort of in a Singapore headspace. Uh, not one-to-one that they want the world to be like Singapore, but if you look at the examples that they're drawn to, I mean, you know, Bloomberg's New York City is very Singaporean in that sense. Uh, you know, there's a, yeah, a very... No, no smoking in the park, no smoking cigarettes even, I mean, in the public yeah, parks. Exactly. And there's a lot of... And, and, there's, and, there's, and also the ways that, you know, some people, which in some ways are contradictions, but I guess if you look at it in a, in a, in a certain market kind of soft authoritarian way that there wouldn't be a contradiction between a, you know, a, a, an, in, an invasive objectively racist and class-based program like stop and frisk with also the idea that you would want the city to be governed by with some diversity and some of the best of every different type of backgrounds, you know, and then, um, in Hungary, you know, that's Orban and that's the resurgence of the kind of global nationalist story, which, you know, I, I think I'll spend less time expanding on because I think everybody kind of has a sense of what that is. And I, and I think what's helpful about the intellectual dark web as a framework to kind of test what I think is hopefully a much more appealing and dynamic and optimistic and interesting version of a left-wing politics uh, that could apply to other 
right wing forces because I, you know, this book, thankfully, it, at least attempts, I hope it succeeds. It's not for me to say, but it attempts to have, uh, to deal with some ideas that will last beyond their particular cultural relevance at the moment. And I'll just conclude by saying, I think that if you look at it from the tr- three train stations idea, uh, the IDW is a very good representation of certain variants of, of Singapore by, say, a Sam Harris. And I think some of the hungry impulses we could see in the in a in a Jordan Peterson. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So there's these three, and and I gather so the idea is these three stations represent just three. You're saying you can kind of categorize, you you can place most kind of political thinkers these days, and maybe most people in one of these three broadly speaking. There's, on the one hand, kind of, you know, ethno-nationalists with maybe some authoritarian bent uh, symbolized by Hungary. You're you're putting a a bunch of people, including some who might not agree that they're fans of Singapore per se, but you're putting a bunch of people in this neoliberal category and... And and uh, and 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 the comparison, uh, the use of the of Singapore as a reference point to some extent embodies your critique of them. And then you identify more with the Finland station. You're a socialist, and uh, sure. to the extent that word means anything, but yes, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, exactly. yes. So yes. And you're saying that 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 uh, that I guess to the IDW's credit, it can claim that it has some people with at least one foot. In one of these, in, in all of these three stations, I mean, would you say Brett Brett Weinstein is there is the closest thing to a socialist or something? No, I, I don't. You wouldn't go I, that but far. I, I will confess, I don't. I the book really does focus a lot more as far as the IDW specifically. There's a chapter on Ben Shapiro that also deals with some other characters involved, but I really took. I mean, I. I think Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson to me represent the most important polls okay. of what's going on. So I, but no, I, I don't think, you know, look, I, I think with Weinstein, I'll, I'll just talk about Brett. He for a emphasizes, second. he emphasizes Weinstein. Uh, Weinstein, pardon me. No I always relation, do this. No relation to Harvey, as he pointed out oh, to me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I certainly, uh, none of that. Uh, yes. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I, no, I, I, to me, sort of, and I would say that this is a branding thing. Saying you supported Bernie Sanders at one point does not a kind of Finland station political project make, uh, you know, and especially in the context of, you know, sort of backing him in 2016. Um, he, may, I, he may have supported him this time. I don't know that he didn't. I'm I think he sure said he that, did but, not. I'm pretty okay. sure he said he would okay. not for, you know, he had to come up. I also just want to say really quickly on Evergreen, and I deal with this really briefly in the book, but I think this is a good example of some of the ways in which if we did bring in a little bit more of this kind of materialist perspective, we could look at things in a, in a more fully fleshed out way. And, and I will say, you know, just because they didn't get any coverage that certainly there's people in the evergreen community that say that Brett, you know, does not represent accurately what happened. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of other context or whatever. It seems to me, and this is where I, I, it's funny you said sales job earlier. I don't think sales job is necessarily a negative term at all. And I'm very concerned about how the left sells itself. So Mm -hmm. it seems to me that even if, uh, 
you know, Brett was the biggest SOB on the planet. Those video images and that story was extremely unhelpful and should be avoided, right? So should be avoided yeah. by the left. You mean? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Now this is. Uh, I mean, in in your book, uh, when you talk about uh, how the left should react to whatever IDW represents, you do say the left should really lighten up. On the kind of, um, on a certain manifestation of the identity politics and the speech code uh, policing and so on, right? That's an important part of where you think the left needs to go. Well, I disaggregate between, you know, again, I think that's why I'm trying to use the word cosmopolitan uh, Mm -hmm. to to really sort of chart a kind of third way um, and integrate economic concerns with, with, uh, you know, serious fights against racism and so on. But yeah, I mean, some of it really is just presentational. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that you don't challenge people. I, I, I do think that the left in general should have the confidence of engaging in, you know, in, in free speech and battles like that because, you know, I actually think the ideas are pretty strong. But I, I do think one, one of the things that, Doug Lane, my publisher, pointed out about the Evergreen situation, which I think was very interesting, was that the backdrop of some of that fight is that Evergreen as an institution is not kind of meeting the demands of the global marketplace. There was some study that, you know, Evergreen graduates were not earning as much as other parts of the graduates of the University of Washington system. There's pressure, particularly on more kind of alternative schools to, you know, show bang for the buck. That's implicating how people can teach and Brett, who actually appreciated a lot of the kind of freedom and flexibility of that approach is getting kind of hampered by some of the new kind of bureaucratic demands. And then at the same time, while structurally maybe the institution is moving in a more, uh, you know, less kind of open direction, uh, the administration sees a lot of opportunity and sort of like, well, you know, we might not be kind of going to the mat for radical education reform or whatever else, but we can certainly, you know, help feed uh, various culture work skirmishes on campus. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's sort of the perspective. I mean, one other example I'll use really quick. I didn't use this in the book, but there was a, these students at the University of Oregon several years ago who were protesting cuts to financial aid. And the administration came down very hard on them. And I remember, without getting into a bunch of other details, the most important takeaway was that instead of looking for solidarity with other students and saying, we're really being, you know, threatened here, I think in some cases maybe to be expelled uh, for these very important protests, we want to, what they did instead of doing that was basically demand that some pro-life groups on campus also get cracked down on. And, you know, what I'm trying to say more broadly from the perspective of my politics is that obviously I'm pro-choice and obviously that argument is quite important. But from the perspective of the administration cracking down on your ability to do a protest, you should go to your anti-abortion brothers and sisters and say, look, we can fight all the rest Mm -hmm. of the day, but we got to sign a petition together to protect all of our rights Mm -hmm. to do whatever kind of politics we need to do on this campus. And that Mm -hmm. is the real strategic I would say kind of more materialist oriented approach. Yeah. Okay. That seems like a good example. So, um, yeah, so you, you look, um, I guess kind of, uh, you do close ups kind of of three people in, in the book, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. And, um, 
uh, just out of curiosity, so, so you've, you've said which, uh, where, where Sam and, um, and, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, belong respectively, uh, uh, Singapore and Hungary. But what, what, <laughs> what would you say about Ben Shapiro? Cause at one time he was associated, uh, with Breitbart. But what, right. what is what is he now exactly? I think he's got his own gig. I mean, on, honestly, it was very hard for me to. I mean, and and I and I will just stipulate, by the way, that when I let's when I say uh, Singapore in the Sam Harris sense, I'm talking right. about the valorization of certain types of what you might think are objective metrics, a kind of comfort with technocracy. Mm. That's the sense that I'm using it. And with Hungary, although I will say Jordan Peterson did meet with Orban, I think about a year ago and it was an uncritical meeting, but I don't, but I'm not saying that Jordan Peterson would support Orban's latest moves to suspend democracy or 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 Trump's. I mean, Peterson hasn't come out in favor of Trump or anything. Has either? He said that he gave this very weird interview where he said he would have, he thinks that he would have planned to vote for Hillary, but would have voted for Trump in the booth or something. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Some kind of Michigas, if you'll forgive my, my wine steam sort of language there for a second uh you know but but i think uh the the primary interest with with uh with the the way peterson is very interested in the restoration of what he thinks are natural hierarchies in both a, a mythological and scientific sense and i think that's where you can see you know the correlation of that Hungry realm in the broadest sense of people being like, let's bring mythology back into public life. Let's mm. think about, you know, uh, why hierarchies work and how they're justified. How can we, uh, what is the relationship between politics and personal meaning? Um, so I just wanted to be, I wanted to kind of, you know, be clear about how I'm using these things. Ben Shapiro, and this to me is a really clear indictment of the whole kind of IDW notion of being a pretty broadly intellectual group he's just a standard right wing talker. No, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I, you know, look, if, if there was a group that said we're the new radical center, all of our fixations are basically on why, you know, corporations are despoiling America and Michael Brooks is one of our top guys. And, uh, but we're not on the left, mm-hmm. you know, it's nonsense. It doesn't, it, it, that doesn't really even, uh, Make a judgment about the quality of the arguments one way or another. It just shows you what zone they're comfortable in, particularly in Shapiro's case. I I have wondered why he is so embraced by them. I mean, in a way, I shouldn't wonder, I guess. Um, But, you know, because, I mean, I don't know how to – I know I said I would play devil's advocate, and I'm going to try to put this politely, but like the term intellectual, you know, I I, I mean – there's some, there's some, there's some smart people in the intellectual dark web in various senses. Sure. Um, he, 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 even, you know, and like you'll listen to them and they'll, they'll say something that just hadn't, that is interesting in a way that makes you think. Even, even Jordan Peterson, very eccentric, but it, it happens, you know, it's like, whoa, let me try to wrap my mind around that. Ben Shapiro just doesn't happen. It's just like, it's just a very common reaction. I'm sorry. It's like, that was a manifestly stupid thing to say. He's just and- a, Rep- he's a Republican talking point machine. And the only thing that was interesting to me about his, you know, was one was this idea of Western civilization, I think is something that does really need to be challenged. And, you know, his sort of like, 
there's this tradition that goes between Athens and Jerusalem, but it like skips all of Islamic history is pretty funny and, you know, worth well, Asian, Asian, you know, Chinese civilization and everything. I mean, I know it's oh, right. a very common perspective is that all of the values we cherish emanate, you know, ha- have were born and cultivated within the Western tradition, which well, it's a big part of my book, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, you get the, uh, Martia Sen stuff. I mean, that that's yeah. amazing, kind of the most exciting part, actually. Um. Anyway, and then there is his, you know, his uh, kind of infamous uh, tweet about um, Jews and Arabs, uh, which uh, I I just thought he never really, he never honestly addressed. I guess that's such an important point because I actually used that because I I used his apologies because he has this whole list on his website of sort of like, you know, basically like things that I've said where it's a bad look is what my interpretation is. Right. And I am somebody who's really, you know, I, I, I think the, the, a certain part of the left, the sort of, you know, it's an overused term, but it's, but hopefully we won't have to talk about it anymore when it stops. But generally this whole puritanical cancel culture thing is right. very toxic, very stupid. And it, and, you know, it, and it runs the gambit from genuinely being censorious and ridiculous to also on the on the other extreme. And I'm I'm thinking of you know Cornell West, who I had the honor of, of interviewing last night. Of of like, look, if we want to actually have a genuinely kind of compassionate, open, redemptive politics, then we have to cultivate compassionate, open, redemptive attitudes. So my thing with Ben Shapiro is not that he made this atrocious comment or our policy arguments. Now we can never read or never talk to him again, but it's actually that he's showing the exact opposite. My read, because he isn't, then none of these things are sincere evolutions of perspective or shifts in, in behavior or worldview. They're just the recognition that when I say it so crudely and so dumbly that, you know, that might be, you know, boy wonder radio shock jock, but that is certainly not, New York Times cool kid intellectual. So well, even if substantively, that, I have no change. That's kind of changed. what I mean. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, the, the tweet was, I think I remember yeah. it, because uh, I tweeted about it, and I've gotten into it a couple of times, but it was like, um, and look, the tweet was from 2010. Okay, we it, it, forgiveness yeah. is possible if you will address it honestly, but what right. the tweet said was like, Jews like to build stuff, Arabs like to blow crap up and live in open sewage. Now, um, I you know, I think that's kind of bigoted. And and what bothered me is that when he finally got around to addressing it, like whatever, seven years later, whenever it was, um, under duress, I think, interestingly, he was compelled to, because now he was part of the IDW and like he wanted to stay in their good graces and they do have some standards. But he said, well, I obviously just meant Arab leaders, which you can tell if you look at the very next tweet. Well, the very next tweet came two hours later after he got a ton of blowback and even it, and even after that, more than two hours later, he was still saying things like, I didn't mean Arabs, I meant Palestinians. Wait a second. Palestinians right. are an ethnic group. Right. We're still talking bigotry. I, 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 I'll let this go in a second. But, but I guess I, I'm surprised by, uh, how readily everybody in the IDW let that pass as, an adequate atonement or something. But don't just, you think that reflects their general attitudes? I mean, this is well, where I, I, I just don't, you know, this is where, again, I can't, and I, and I tried to in the book and, you know, so I think some people will, you know, accept it or not. And certainly in interviews for the book that like, 
you know, part of what I do at times is obviously is comedy and entertainment and people like it or they don't. And that's fine. And it is what it is, but I've tried to kind of put that aside. And even the book is relatively less polemical than it could have been. So I'm not, you know, but at the same time, I think we also just need to, to be clear. I don't, I don't see daylight in that belief between basically what any of these characters do think about Islam or the broader Middle East. Well, I don't see know, much. I think, I think tonally there's I mean, a very all, big daylight. First of all, everyone but him would have the brains not to say that if they believed it. I don't think, sure, sure. I don't think, uh, I would even attribute anything like those beliefs to all of them. But, but in any event, that that's kind of what I meant. Like, why is he in the club? He's just not sophisticated enough. Right? Well, because I, I mean, I think it's, well, I guess, I guess part of it is I'm not sure. I mean, I think he's sophisticated enough, just fine for, I mean, look, this is also a group that, you know, Dave Rubin was in that profile and I don't want to do a lot of low hanging fruit here, but I mean, let, you know, this, now, see, this, there's a guy I really know nothing about. I've just paid no attention to him. I gather he used to be on the young Turks. What, what, what is the actual intersection between him and the young Turks? ideology and is it that he's changed or just that there was this other part of him that never intersected and that's what he's emphasizing now or what i don't my read on him is that there is not a lot of uh very strong you know convictions one way or another and Uh he he you know and, and again he's really not like people will say and it's ridiculous to say like joe joe rogan's a smart guy yeah, and agree with him, disagree with him, whatever. And and, and 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 actually, I don't think I've seen signs that he would be on the same wavelength as Ben Shapiro on that particular issue. I don't know. I don't know either, but I think that that he is somebody. Well, again, I think Joe is actually important to understand as somebody who who, in good ways and bad ways, represents like where the actual American center is to the extent it exists. But mm-hmm. leaving that aside, Dave Rubin is like not an intelligent person. I mean, you can watch him <laughs> speak, and I, I know I try to tap this stuff down when we yeah. dialogue, but this guy is, you know, and, and again, now, now I would say he's more, and, you know, he's certainly hosted a lot of very extreme right-wing figures, and he's, you know, he just met with Trump recently, and, you know, I think he, and he's just signed on to Glenn Beck's network. I, I read just endless opportunism, but I'm just saying in terms of, if we were going to say there was intellectual caliber, you couldn't say that if Dave Rubin is the center of it. You, you know, you just couldn't say it. And I, I also, I just, I just have paid yeah. no attention. So I'll have, for, for the time well, being, I'll, I'll accept your verdict and we'll research further. I mean, but, yeah, it, it is. It, it, honestly, unless you want to, you know, watch some videos. I mean, th- this guy is, is, yeah, he's just not bright. But in, in Ben Shapiro's case, it seems to me that, you know, again, the fixations are there. The, Political correctness is blah, 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 uh, you know, and, and also with Peterson, and I don't think Harris would put it in the same way, but I think there's a lot of overlap with Western civilization, quote unquote, is good. Um, yeah. And Peterson. capitalism is, capitalism is important to these folks. Again, there's different variations. I'm sure, you know, Harris obviously would accept some need to have some kind of minimal regulatory state, but you know, a guy like Steve Pinker, who is adjacent to these guys, he's not, you know, he's not someone who wants to dismantle the entire regulatory apparatus or, you know, no, no. get, but, but he is somebody who is, you know, very preoccupied 
with, you know, well, why does the left not understand that markets are really valuable and really, and, and, and so I think that part of this project that they do share and would share with Shapiro is, is a certain type of apology for capitalism as well. So I, I think that he, and by the way, I would distinguish between markets and capitalism, but that's another day. But I, I think that Ben Shapiro is, uh, he fits right in. Yeah. Although he's less challenged. I mean, you know, that, that chapter has less, there just isn't as much material to talk about. In that sense, I agree. I, I do think, I mean, the closest thing to a clear common denominator in terms of kind of social forces that have shaped these people is that pretty much all of them have had unpleasant encounters with what they would call social justice warriors. And, uh, and that would no doubt include, um, Steve Pinker, although I think you, you, you use the term adjacent. And I think that's right. I don't think he's been, uh, Barry Weiss did not give him official membership, I think, in the, uh, in the club. But, um, but that much, I'm trying to think if there's any exception to that. But I think, and, and that's the, um, and this, of course, is the critique that, that kind of you, you, you make others, Glenn Greenwald have made is that it isn't that they are universal free speech crusaders. It's that, um, they are against, uh, uh, the oppression of free speech as they see it that emanates from a certain ideological quarter. Um, I mean, I think that that's, you know, you know, yeah, I, I don't, I think that that's just undeniable. I, I, and I think it's a shame. I think there's very few people. Uh, and I've started to think more critically in terms of my own work and perspective. I, I think there should actually be more people who really do have a kind of, uh, to some extent, absolutist speech positions. You know, I, I admire Greenwald for that. Yeah, no, he is yeah. he's ideologically consistent there. Um, I think more than most most um, IDW people probably the. Um, yeah, so Jordan Peterson, you do talk about at length. He's a fascinating character. We should say he's undergone some personal troubles, and I mean it when I say I hope uh, things are going better. He got, I guess, addicted to a sedative or something while his wife his wife was ill, and he was going through hard times, and he got addicted to benzos and, and went to Russia and got some strange therapy. I, I, I have not, uh, I, I haven't heard anything about him in a month or so. I, I, uh, I don't know if he's he's speaking in, again or what, but I hope he's better. I don't think so. I no, think is he he's still. Yeah. He's, um, yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but he's a fascinating, he's a fascinating, genuinely fascinating character. Um, and, uh, you know, so many of these people are impressive along one dimension or another. Yeah. He's, he's in his own way a very impressive orator of a certain kind. Sam Harris is an impressive orator of a certain kind, a different kind. You know, Sam has mastered this kind of, I am, I am Mr. Spock, you know, this is, this <laughs> right. is like pure reason with fervor, you know, right. like, right. uh, so Mr. Spock plus fervor. But, um, but Peterson is, is, uh, is a fascinating guy. I don't know what, what, uh, I thought that the thing, I mean, I think Peterson is the most important, uh, I, I think that his actual, I mean, look, I, I obviously, I think at the end of the day, I don't think any of their sort of big ideas as, as again, as Cornell West said, and I was, you know, flattered that he had a familiarity with the book, which I did not expect. And he, he kind of said, you know, he was giving me some very nice compliments and he said, however, you know, these weren't the most profound conservative brothers. And, 
<laughs> you know, and rightly pointed out that taking on, you know, an, an Edmund Burke would be a much, much uh, diff- more difficult task. So, you know, I can't pretend that I think, I, I, I don't think, you know, Sam Harris's analysis of the bell curve or Islam or any of the, I, I, I think it's very unimpressive is the most polite way I could put it. But the, the problem I think specifically with Peterson though, is that Peterson's like there, all these articles debunking him or making fun of his kind of, you know, he does, he has very eccentric thought. I mean, he kind of thinks that Jungian archetypes are sort of a mythological expression with natural evolutionary systems. And they both point to sort of patterns of myth-making and personal meaning and social order and, you know, this is, this is kind of, this is certainly, especially in a, in an, in an intellectual zone that's gotten so secularized. I mean, this is, this is out there stuff. And I, I'm not allergic at all to the spiritual questions, but I think that there are, he contradicts himself. His ideas are, you know, you, you can, you can, you know, write a column very easily sort of doing that. But the most important thing about him is I think he's really identified a certain type of alienation and a certain type of Mm -hmm. lack of meaning and a certain type of real crisis in our time. And I happen to think his answers to it, again, are actually internally very contradictory because even if you, and obviously I reject, I mean, he's got, in my view, extremely reactionary views on things like gender. And I do not, you know, I don't approve of how he popped into the public consciousness by freaking out about pronouns. I I don't. However, I would say that even if you took his own terms and even if you let's try to disaggregate, uh, you know, sort of a social policy that opposes people's equity versus a concern that I actually think everybody could share with the notion that, People are having trouble forming community bonds. People can't, you know, uh, like things that are kind of slotted as fuddy-duddy conservative concerns. First of all, they're not. They're universal concerns of people's ability to, you know, again, form bonds, build community, and so on. His rightful concern about those things and his kind of devotion to capitalism are very contradictory because certainly in Western societies, if you want to start to support, if you really think like people need to get back into kind of traditional families or whatever, uh, you're going to need to put some policies in place to allow that in terms mm-hmm. of wages and regulation and housing subsidies and so on. But so, so to me, yeah, I, I think Peterson is tapping into something that is sort of the most of the zeitgeist. And he is probably the one that I have the most understanding of, you know, you're 18 years old. Life is very scary. You haven't been exposed to that much. And you see this guy who is, is going out and, and talking about books you probably haven't read and scientific ideas that are fascinating and then bringing it quite literally to your room. Uh, which, you know, cause obviously some of the self-help advice is, you know, makes total sense and, totally basic, you know, it's good stuff. I don't, when I say basic, I mean that in a positive way, right? Like a lot of basic things are good as we know from our mindfulness practice, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but you're, you, I mean, you're right. He, he not only, I mean, a number of these people have tapped into, uh, you know, uh, a, a, 
a, a resentment toward or, or a fed upness with uh, kind of, you know, speech codes that seemed to emanate from the left. So he did that like the rest of them. But then he he further tapped into, I mean, I don't know whether he consciously sensed it or not, that a lot of the people who responded to that had this had had issues uh, that involved just, uh, you know, not not. Not feeling that they had their shit together, maybe, and 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 him just right. saying, for starters, you got to get your shit together. Um, I mean, I don't know how many copies that book sold. Uh, the what is it? Oh, twelve, 12 rules for life. I mean, twelve it's, rules for it's life. Incredibly um, sold, incredibly well. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure it helped a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I, 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 there wasn't, you know, you, you went through the rules and said, you know, these are mostly unobjectionable. You had issues with a couple, but, um, so you know, one thing you pointed out that I hadn't really thought about. I mean, you kind of asked the question early on, how new is this actually? And you brought up Alan Bloom's book from the 1980s, The Closing of the American Mind. I actually hadn't thought about that in connection with the IDW, but I guess it is, you see that as a kind of a a precursor, right? Yeah. No, I do. I, I think that there's, I think what's new is all of these other kind of ancillary, but very interesting sort of self-help with Peterson or Harris's stuff with meditation. I think the way it's kind of connected a political project with a kind of broader set of techniques and answers around people's personal lives is, is definitely different. And I think actually something that the, you know, if you have left politics, you, you need to think very seriously about, but I do think, it seems to me from my familiarity with Bloom, which is not usually extensive, but I mean, I know that book of the, you know, his sort of rejection and complaint about, you know, liberal campus politics and multiculturalism in the eighties. And then of course the, you know, the nineties controversies, you can go back into the archives and look at all these extremely heated arguments on the campus about the curriculum. It really echoes that. And to me, you know, and, and it's, and it makes sense because I think some of it is just a product also of stuff that, you know, in the same way that some of the woke stuff is just sort of campus stuff kind of migrating out into a broader pop culture. This is sort of the, you know, the backlash migrating out into a bigger pop culture as well. And, and, you know, look, it's a venerable conservative tradition of, you know, conservatives complaining about the college students. But again, I think that the distinction that I would want to add to this and I try to do in my book is that, is that is, is two things. I mean, one, as soon as a Brett Weinstein, uh, you know, goes on Tucker Carlson and starts entertaining the notion of state legislation to, you know, regulate uh, some aspects of, of a sort of research and, you know, academic endeavor on college campuses or Jordan Peterson, he scrapped it, but, you know, had this idea of like kind of monitoring professors. I mean, uh, through a website or a database, this kind of reminds me of David uh, Horowitz, who was a, mm. you know, a very, very, you know, kind of traumatized baby Stalinist who went on to a, I think he's still around as an arch reactionary. And he went, you know, he came to Bates when I was a student and, basically was trying to incite against the professors. So as soon as you do that, not only are you not having a principled position of inquiry in the face of, you know, I I think in some areas, very wrongheaded speech codes or whatever, you're actually, you're even more dangerous because you're potentially implicating state power to actually do that, which certainly no students 
that, you know, these guys can endlessly whine about uh, are doing. And, and the other point that I'll make briefly, and maybe we get back to later is I, I think that the, the, the argument is that you, you want to expand, like we were talking about earlier, that, that there, there is a universalist project and it's, and it's, and it has to include everybody. So like CLR James, you know, to quote him again, I mean, one time they said, you know, as a, as a Trinidadian intellectual, you know, what, what, why are you reading Shakespeare? So he said, well, I'm reading Shakespeare as a human being. These concerns concern all of us. And I think the third way between hyper particularity and Western chauvinist universalism is actual universalism. And I think that's a compelling answer, particularly in a global world. Okay. So that, yeah, does lead us back to, I guess this, um, Cosmopolitanism, which is a big emphasis. Now, you, you, I guess the term is socialist cosmopolitanism for, sure, yeah. for, uh, for those who are socialists as well as cosmopolitans. You want to, you want to say any more about that? I mean, why is that, uh, in all of its dimensions, kind of an apt, an effective riposte to what the IDW represents? I mean, I get uh, there's, uh, a, a, an aspect of it, I, I guess, that we talked about, which is, um, a certain kind of, uh, free speech. Well, I don't know if you'd say absolutism, but, uh, you're recommending that, uh, that the left embrace the spirit of the IDW's insistence on the free ventilation of, of ideas without a lot of speech code policing from any particular corner. I see that as a, um, just almost in a tactical sense, you know, even if you didn't believe it, I'm, I'm sure you do, but even if you didn't believe in the actual value of that, it would make tactical sense. So it's, it's right. in various ways, a logical response. Um, but do you want to flesh out cosmopolitanism more broadly, uh, uh, well, in this context? Well, I guess it, it, it struck me that if I was looking at a movement that, again, again, I think is reactionary, I think is, I reject in, you know, any number of ways. And then there's, you know, there's this broader kind of looking at, okay, what is it that, what is it that f- makes us fail or makes us weak on the left? that allows this stuff to kind of grow. And, you know, there's typical left-wing answers, which there's truth to, which is that, you know, if you're on the right, you're more likely to access funding. And, you know, I, I look, I, I think that there are a lot of reasons for this, but to the extent that we, it's like the Bernie campaign, there's a million structural barriers to it. We still should think about the 5% we could have done better to change the outcome. Right. And so I think, um, what struck me about this cosmopolitan thing and the, connecting it with a materialist socialist understanding was that it, it sort of answered two challenges that come up because I do think at the end of the day, the IDW, I think one other version of looking at what they're doing is a form of Western chauvinism is a form of kind of a universalism that you're either going to try to say is some type of objective scientific understanding of the universe that can just pretty much truncate, you know, politics and history and everything else. Or if, you know, Peterson, you know, very clearly with, you know, the West sort of gave us freedom, this type of thing. It, it actually in some ways oddly, and, and this also correlates with this right wing rise of nationalism, which I don't think these guys are, I think there's continuums, but I wouldn't identify any of them actually really as nationalists. But then there's this kind of 
hyper liberal standpoint epistemology idea, which is that we can never have a collective endeavor. We can never work across boundaries because we're also mediated by our subjective experience inside these institutions of oppression that, you know, there's no CLR James option. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like that there isn't somebody who can write this unbelievable treatment of the Haitian revolution that everybody should read who also, you know, likes Thackeray and Shakespeare or the way uh, Zizek on my show, I love this point, said that the French revolution only became globally relevant after the Haitian revolution, hmm. because that's when those ideas started to get sort of globally deployed and not just in a European context and mash up and mix with other ideas. So it struck me that, you know, there's one way of answering these guys is to say, and I think there's a lot of truth in this. I, I'll, say one anecdote. I, I was at an event in Boise and I was talking to this college student and he said, you know, I kind of was into these guys and it seemed like there was sort of the IDW and they were kind of interested in science and this and that. And then what I thought of as liberal or left was basically just a lot of people telling me that like my favorite TV show was bad or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he said, and then he goes, and then, but then I found people like you and you were actually telling me why I was in a student debt hole. And mm -hmm. that seemed a hell of a lot more compelling than all this other nonsense. So I think there's one element that's just getting down to earth and that's the materialism. And that is the fact like that Adolf Reed says, and I agree that the most universal question you could ask somebody is, do you need to work for a living? Mm -hmm. That pretty much implicates almost everybody. And there's a lot of room to build from there. And I think that's true. But I also, I think what this cosmopolitanism does is it answers a, ver a bad tendency on the left in, in an identitarian politics, I'd say, versus identity politics. And then this Western chauvinism on the right, where you can really say there are actual grounds for universal aspirations and universal desires, but they are mediated through different cultures. And the answer is, is you, you look and, and you find them and you find their base in a variety of different contexts and places. And, and the last thing I'll, I illustrate this by talking about Amartya Sen's response to the Asian values debate in the 1990s, where these, you know, uh, Asian leaders, uh, like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore and, and Mahathir in Malaysia, in response to the kind of 90s West triumphalism of, you know, we won the Cold War, let's get out there, everybody hold free and fair elections and buy into all of our, you know, unfairly written trade deals, I would say. Um, and these guys said in response, no, 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 it's, it's not that it's, we're not just like, you know, autocrats. We do believe in human rights, but we we're Confucian, so we have a different conception. So when we smack somebody around for smoking a cigarette, that isn't us being control freaks, that's us promoting social harmony. And, uh, and I think what Sen did, and again, Sen was careful. Sen didn't, you know, he didn't make historical leaps. Obviously, there's certain types of parliamentary democracy, or, you know, that were created at specific times and, you know, European countries in the 17th, 18th centuries. But he said, both of you guys are wrong. That, you know, the idea that freedom or justice or unbroken Western values from the ancient Greeks to, you know, modern America is ahistorical and delusional, including going back to understanding that Greece and Rome itself were 
multicultural African and Asian societies. And then that secondly, these Asian value guys are full of it because I can just as easily give you a reading of Confucius as an example that talks about social harmony through, uh, you know, transparency or holding mm-hmm. power accountable. And then it actually opens up a whole other, you know, very interesting sets of questions within democratic parameters, you know, like maybe, we understand that free speech for journalists is sacrosanct, but maybe we also recognize that, you know, I don't know, regulating sugary uh, drink ads on kids' cartoons is okay. And mm-hmm. maybe it competes with another value, right? So I, I think, you know, ultimately I just went back to to the work from Sen and CLR James and Adolf Reed and Cornell West and people like that, because I, I do think you can't, if you as the left reject an idea of the universal, then you're going to lose. Because there's what left project wins that doesn't amass a vast majority of people in some type of collective shared aspiration. But then conversely, you, you do need to globalize it because we, we live mm-hmm. in, a, in a global age and being global is a better way to be. And I, and I think what a, what a more compelling answer to the IDW instead of just sort of condemning them to open up a completely a much, much larger playing field of, of intellectual mm-hmm. and political influence. Well, and it's consistent with the, you know, the kind of roots of the left. I mean, socialism begins with a class-based analysis of, of, right. of life and class yeah. cuts across nationality, ethnicity, uh, and so on, rather than uh, getting too bogged down in them as categories in themselves. Right. So do you want to, um, speaking of the left, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about, uh, contemporary politics? Uh, how are you, um, recovering from the, the, uh, the Bernie Sanders collapse? <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think it was, it's bad. That was an important race. Uh, for me personally, I, I was in an event, uh, in LA for Super Tuesday. And, you know, I, I'm not, you know, it, it, I, I came to peace with it then. You know, the California win was great, but you could see the rest of the map and mm-hmm. it was over. So I guess emotionally I went through the, the grieving process then. I mean, look, I held out some hope for Michigan or whatever. Um, I guess in some ways it doesn't. I, I never I always really did basically think it was a Sanders Biden race. Until the very, I mean, until, you know, Biden got embarrassed in New Hampshire. Then I wrote him off like everybody else. But yeah. I never I, I, I never really I, I thought people were showing their bubbles a lot when they didn't get why Biden would be so resilient. Um, I mean, what can I say? I think it's electorally, it's an extremely bleak time. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it's the fact that Sanders at the end of the day, who I think does have uncommon decency for a politician was just offering such basic sanity in terms of, you know, basic national infrastructure for people, some ideas on foreign policy, which I think both in terms of, you know, I, obviously I think his willingness to speak about Lula's imprisonment in Brazil was incredibly important to me. And I, I certainly harangued the people I knew on the campaign about that. But, you know, even other things that were framed as somehow radical were just the building blocks of a modest, sane, <laughs> you know, international policy. Uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame. And, and now here we go into the election with, um, you know, a, a president that obviously shouldn't be reelected and a guy like, you know, Biden, 
I don't know what to say. I know that this triggers certain people, but he is deteriorating. I don't like who could possibly deny that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, concerning. I mean, again, I'm, I've said this a lot and, and I first, I don't know. I first commented on it a couple of years ago on Twitter. Uh, I'm not saying he has dementia, but, uh, he's clearly, uh, Lost a step. I don't, I don't know how many steps he's, and look, and not necessarily in a way that's abnormal for a guy in his late, his late seventies. I mean, not so long ago, that was past the life expectancy of, you know, well past life. You know, it, it's, there's nothing, nothing shameful about it, but I do think it's an issue and, 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 uh, it worries me just because I, I, I really don't want to see another, another Trump term. I mean, I, I don't, I don't worry tremendously about, you know, I think Biden, compared to the the Trump administration, we would be in good hands even if it was, you know, kind of a, uh, even if Biden weren't fully in charge 24-7, you might say. I mean, foreign policy concerns me because it was one of, it was one of, you know, I'm not that far left, but the thing I found so appealing about Bernie was the foreign policy. Right. And, 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 uh, and and not only that, but but my belief that he, for various reasons, would actually be able to stand up to the foreign policy establishment. And uh, Biden, you know, actually, he has a somewhat less interventionist bent than some liberal uh, internationalists, but uh, he's he's in no shape to be resisting the entire foreign policy establishment. The blob will completely engulf him. And yeah, I don't. Yeah. And again, I think. Sure. I think, yeah, I guess there's some, you know, reporting about Biden during the Obama administration not wanting to surge in Afghanistan, but in the totality of his career from drones. Yeah, no, he's no. He, to, he's, I mean, yeah. this guy is, and I, I mean, I think he's a constructor of the block to some extent. I mean, the, the modern he's, foreign policy apparatus in the Democratic Party in yeah. some part runs through Joe Biden as Senate foreign relations chair. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, for decades, both on foreign and domestic policy was always showing and proving that he was, you know, not a typical Democrat, um, you know, which meant pivoting to the hard right. I, I look, I obviously I don't want, of course, I don't want Trump to be reelected, but I, I am not, you know, I, I guess this is just to me there. Look, there is an ideological base of why I'm not sanguine. I look, I think Medicare for all and things like that. I don't even know, I, you know, in my worldview, that's barely even left. This is mm-hmm. a basic, you know, well, increasingly it's right. not, it's increasingly yeah, I mean, not outside the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, this stuff is something principle. we need if we want to have a basic functioning society. But I just look at, you know, a, a guy who, you know, yeah, it'll, it'll be staffed up by, by retreads, it will sort of kick along. I, I mean, maybe, you know, you know, I think there'll be some relief to some certain types of immediate suffering, although I would be very concerned about uh, an interest in cutting social security and Medicare. And I think as far as foreign policy goes, I, I, I think it's very, you can't, you know, you have to be so careful with these analogies, but even just with the, the China stuff, like, the pivot to Asia already was the upscale version of 
we got to get serious about China. They're not yep. just a big sweatshop anymore. No, it was. They're I mean, the rise, you know. Yeah. I mean, my question was, why pivot anywhere? Why not just, why not just get out of the Middle East? I mean, I mean, the, you know, the Obama line, it was almost a concession to the foreign policies. You can't just say, let's trim our sails in the Middle East. You got to say, and we'll put more force somewhere else. We'll pivot to Asia. You right. know, that's the way, that's the way DC works. And, um, and well, this, this is why the pandemic is, uh, well, there are many reasons the pandemic is troubling. One is a lot of people die, but in this case, the forces it's bringing to the surface. I mean, uh, you know, in the, uh, you mentioned, well, I guess maybe this is before we started taping. I wrote this piece about Steve Bannon in the non-zero newsletter. I mean, he's, fascinating to listen to right now he's using the pandemic to get a bigger audience for his podcast and i mean he is 24 7 war on china the evil communist party and alarmingly and, and i do think that's where the the uh broadly republicans are clearly headed even if trump himself is not as full-throated about it lately as somebody like bannon would like uh he's pretty full-throated but uh, what's most alarming to me is the way biden seems to be turning it into a bidding war I mean, yeah, in a way that I don't even think will be electorally like Biden needs to learn from Trump, which is if that ad was about Trump is easy on she specifically because there's like, you know, petty corruption or whatever. That could be an effective ad. But Biden, they're probably scared to do that because of Hunter. But I, where I wish they would learn from Trump, which is who cares? Like, OK. Sure. Hit me back with my kid. I'll hit you with your loser kid. But I, I think more broadly, yeah, I, 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 I just doesn't it, – it also contradicts another thing that I think he's been trying to say. And I think another kind of very – I mean, the rhetoric about China is obviously very disturbing, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's also just delusional. I mean, right now – and they say this themselves, but it's like our supply chains are completely dependent on this country. And you're going to, at the same time, generate a new Cold War and bully them. I mean, it's like a performative contradiction. And I think, you know, frankly, especially Biden, who's running to the barely any, to the extent there's even any presence in the campaign, he's saying he's a return to normalcy. It was an opportunity to say, of course, if I need to, I know how to negotiate. I know how to protect our interests, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But we can't have a cold war with China now. Like this is ridiculous. This is childish. Right. We can't, we can't have some guy who's, you know, upset that he didn't get to have a bigger movie producing career in the nineties, get us into a global catastrophe. Like, come on, like let's, you know, let's be adults. I mean, that's what he's trying to sell anyways. So I don't even see, like, setting aside all of the critiques of the ad and the xenophobia it does stoke, I don't see the strategic foresight in it at all. Yeah, there is a Peter, Peter Beinert had a piece in the Atlantic questioning it on both of those grounds. I mean, the most troublesome th- thing was the phrase, the Chinese. I forget yes. the phrase, but it was like yes. Trump, I don't think it was quite bowed down, but it was like bowed down to, quote, the Chinese. Yep. As opposed to, I mean, even Steve Bannon is careful to stipulate that his enemy is the Communist Party in China. Steve Bannon is way more careful than the Joe Biden ad. And then there's another super PAC right. Biden ad that is in a way as troubling, if not more so in 
in spirit. So, yeah, I, I don't know that um, I was hoping he might take the high road, uh, but because it's, a you know, the pandemic, it's, you know, by the way, you mentioned, you know, look, we're going to have these uh, supply chains, you're going to have to deal with China. But of course, the, the, the full-fledged version of the Trump base platform now as articulated by steve bannon and so on is no in the supply chains too i mean they, they want well, to I use see, i actually they, agree with that to some yeah, extent okay well you're on board with it uh, no i'm but i think that's well again but i again to me messaging wise well look i mean it, it, that is going to become like a 70 80 percent issue that we should have some capacity to produce our own drugs and pharmaceuticals and really important oh sure but i think people like bannon uh they and peter navarro want to turn it into a broader uh critique and and they can probably sell americans on it until you start telling americans their smartphones are going to cost three hundred dollars more oh yeah Um, that's not going to happen but i do think there's i think that the that people on the left need to really actually get very quickly into we're not going to have a war with China. We have to deal with China. And absolutely, I mean, we need to have more, uh, uh, some degree of greater nationalism and localism in terms of supply chains generally. And the whole world is yeah. moving in that direction. I mean, China, J- Japan is incentivizing companies to repatriate and supporting local production across Asia. And I don't think all of that needs to go in some type of crazy xenophobic direction i mean some of that particularly with vital supplies i mean i yeah. i have the politics of course that i you know i think every country and i think an achievement of china's development model is that they've guarded domestic industries and done something like that and i i would not want to cede that ground to the right at all i don't want josh holly to be the only one talking about why we right. need you know mask and pharmaceutical supplies but yeah yeah, no, and I've, I was always, I've been long surprised that we didn't, you know, these rare earth minerals, I think is the term that China generates a lot of that are, that are critical in a modern yep. electronic economy. I've been surprised, you know, they exist in places other than China, but it just takes more strenuous cultivation to get them. And I, and I was surprised that Obama didn't start some kind of thing to make sure we would have access to them, uh, even if, uh, China cut them off. But, um, no, that's all. That's all fine, but the the overall, you know, the 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 the, the more broadly nationalist and xenophobic um, vibes I'm picking up in the way as a result of the pandemic are a little concerning. Disaster. I also wonder what is the room. And this is something that I try to buy, balance in my work, where you know, sort of, particularly obviously when I'm talking about Latin America, my frame is very much U.S. imperialism interference. Middle East and, and some governments that I, I frankly have certainly sympathy for. Um, in the Middle East, maybe the same dynamics in terms of policy, but not necessarily the same sympathy in terms of some governments on the other side of the equation. But in China, it, 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 it's, it's such a complicated place. And what's really concerning to me is that I don't see very many people who the, 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 there, there's the, the Bannon stuff, but then there's even in, in terms of the more kind of respectable sort of Asia society world, you can read the pivot. We have to be strategic competitors. We have to have a diplomatic relationship, but there's all these things that are just necessarily a problem, which I just can't accept. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. Why shouldn't China be in the 5G market? Why shouldn't it? I mean, it's ridiculous just on a very basic power and geography level, the idea that China isn't going to have an enormous amount of influence in the world. And then conversely, I, you know, I know 
you know, people, some people more in my sphere who, you know, at times it's, it's like, okay, well, we need China to be something it isn't, you know, like there, of course there's human rights abuses in China. Of course there isn't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, look, I think the debate about whether it's managed capitalism that's transitioning versus state capitalism is interesting, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that the Chinese government is, is, is building and prototyping a, a more just sustainable democratic world. <laughs> No, and we need to be able to have an intellectually coherent conversation about that. But then at the same time, we, this rush is coming so fast and it's not just Republicans, it's Democrats. And, mm-hmm. and including, you know, I saw, you know, Matt Stoller, who I, you know, I'm, I'm very different politics from, but he writes some very smart stuff on supply chains, monopolies. Comparing the CCP to the Nazi party? No, I know. He's, I mean, are you uh, serious? Well, I think he's always been a little hyperbolic. Uh, but I, I got into a very brief exchange with him on Twitter and no, he, he, it seems kind of like crazy talk to me. Yeah, I can't get Um, that. Now, I was, I was actually a little surprised to, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but, um, uh, Glenn Greenwald was kind of taking his side. Did you see this exchange on Twitter? Do you no. Know, is is Adam Johnson a name that uh you know Adam? Yeah, is that the name? not so particularly was, well, but I so, know him. So I he mean, was yeah. arguing with Stoller. Glenn was kind of uh in some sense on Stoller's side in a way that surprised me a little. It was an interesting debate, and I'd like to see it aired out more. But anyway, I was not. On the Stoller side of things. <laughs> well, a lot of these arguments now on Twitter, and again, I, of course, it's it's extremely important right now. No doubt this rhetoric is, you know, it is creating an environment of racism and xenophobia in the United States. You can find endless anecdotal, at least, examples of it, and it needs to be fought against and spoken against. But I do, I think that sometimes you have the, hyperbolic, insane bloodlust against China. And then unfortunately, again, this is actually sort of a dynamic in my book. Sometimes you have people I think who have, you know, very good intentions and I would sort of generally agree with on certain things, but it's like, you can't, you know, it it almost verges on, okay, I'm not being problematic. I'm talking about Xi's foreign policy. (laughs) You know, like kind of like Twitter woke divism is not going to get us through like, you know, geopolitics. Yeah. So you got to kind of do all of these things simultaneously. And, um, and it's, you know, I actually really enjoy reading Pepe Escobar who writes at the Asia times. And he's, and I would say someone who, I mean, he's, you know, he's brilliant, really fun to talk to and he's got great analysis. And I think he's somebody who really does look at the world. I think he's, you know, he's sympathetic. He's not a mouthpiece, but he's very sympathetic to the Chinese worldview. And also the Russian and Iranian worldview to some extent. And one of the, and a great thing, I don't always agree with him analytically at all, but I mean, he's one of the only sources you can read in English who seems to have a sense of what the policy making apparatus is like in mm-hmm. China. Like what, what are they actually thinking? And I don't, I feel like in the United States, there's almost none of that, whether people are being as ridiculous as comparing them to Nazis or saying that they're, you know, benign, misunderstood socialists, you know, and I, and, and so it's, we're going to have to figure out how to, yeah, how to have a more realist conversation. I think I I agree. And I, and I, and, 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 you know, for starters, it bears repeating, 
some of the human rights abuses are abhorrent. What they're doing uh, with the Uyghurs, to the extent that I can discern it, is completely abhorrent. Uh, it's just that if the Middle East, if our various misadventures in the Middle East should have taught us anything, the Iraq invasion, the Libyan intervention, arming along with our European allies, uh, insurgents in Syria, who turned out to include a lot of jihadists and so on, um, it's that there's a big difference between seeing something in a society that that needs improving and um, intervening in a way that doesn't make things worse. And I just you, you just have to be realistic about what you can do at the moment. And also and this is a good I mean, this is a, this is a very solid, you know, the anti-imperialist left critique like where I would where I would hold back is I still think, you know, it's look, of course there's serious human rights violations in China and Iran. And so on. there's certainly serious. You, I, I would absolutely have the worldview that the United States is the leading human rights violator in the world, just on the pure basis of our footprint. But I, I would say that the, the, the human rights discourse is how you get the liberals in line for terrible foreign policy. You know, that has been the record of the last couple. And, and again, you can't, it's not a question of denying or, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I, I don't think you can do that either. But I think that that's how you enlist the liberals for warmongering. That's the way it has tended to work. Yeah. And, and I don't, and, and, again, and again, with China, I mean, the stakes are so much, are significantly higher frankly. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We can't, we can't deny those obvious things, but we also have to see how those discourses work. And I also think there's, there's one thing, like, I think, look, if somebody comes out and says the Tibetans are treated great, the Uyghurs are awesome, you know, everything's fantastic. It's just education programs, you know, bullshit, absolute bullshit. Of course, there's serious rights abuses there, and we know that. And that is documented. And then on the other hand, I, I would say that I have – I'm also not going to just take people – you know, I see people all of a sudden, like there's one New York Times article, then there's a few reports, and all of a sudden it's a given fact that there are concentration camps in this part of the world – that to me is an extreme escalation. The other, you know, that to me is like, wait a second. Yeah, I, I think we I, need I to agree. disaggregate here what we're actually talking now, about. Now, I associate Not- concentration camps with where you stay before they commit mass murder. And, right. And, uh, I, I, again, I wish I knew more about what's happening in the, in the, you know, and it's completely abhorrent what I understand is happening. Definitely. But I do think you need to be careful with language. Um, and as precise as you can be. Um, and to really, yeah, so you can properly disaggregate those things. And also, I think, have the room to, even when it is, uh, you know, a, I'm not even necessarily abhorrent, but, you know, something like Belton Road, which has major upsides and some <laughs> significant downsides. Right. I, that's something you just got to be able to put on in the same way that, frankly, people on the left sometimes just need to look at, U.S. foreign policy, not always as a never-ending kind of moral exercise, but just look and say, what are the interests at play? How is it working here? And then critique it, of course. But Mm. we need to do some of that with China, too, I think. No, it's like uh, the the idea that – the the ideas that – and and again, especially amid the pandemic, you're just seeing so many more uncritical 
assessments of what China's aspirations actually are. Right. Including things like the belt. You know, it's like, yeah, they want to do what great powers have done, ex- dominate to the extent that they can do that, uh, as we have tried to do. And, um, but they're not like suicidal about it. They're not crazy enough to think they can like conquer, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that they want to invade America or something. I mean, let's keep it in perspective. Um, and, and all signs are they want to do this by commercial means. Now, there are obvious hotspots. Taiwan, you, 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 you know, that's a problem. But, uh, I, I, I guess I won't go on too much longer. I, no, I think that's important. I mean, because even, and look at, you know, look at how atrocious our policy is in Africa and why do African governments find, you know, at the very least, there's no BS about getting the construction going and appealing partnership. And, and also in addition to that, I, I forget where I read this, but it was something that was really compelling. Basically the idea that like maybe, and and it's funny because I've noticed this actually on both people on the left who are very excited about what's happening in China as well as the standard, you know, kind of U.S. defense discourse that Xi Jinping really represents something different. That he is like a reversion to type. It's, you know, Mao is coming back and all of this stuff. And this piece was, was actually saying, First of all, barely. You know, Xi Jinping is actually quite in line with the last several Chinese leaders in terms of the kind of, and yes, there have been some changes in terms of foreign expansion, still not even remotely as aggressive as the United States. I mean, China's not fighting proxy wars across the world and doing anything like that. And let's go back and listen very carefully what Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao said. They said that they would have a peaceful rise. Well, they've kind of risen. It was always the plan that at a certain point, which they developed enough, that of course they would start to play a different role in international relations. And the argument is that she is basically doing, you know, it's, it's, yes, there's some changes, there's some enhanced consolidation, but he's in the same playbook. And the only difference is now is that we're, you know, it's one thing I think in the Peter Navarro, Thomas Friedman, Bannon thing, which is like, hey, you know, it's okay if you're bootlegging our DVDs but not that you're in the 5G market. And that's just never going to, that, that is just a chauvinism that's never going to fly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. 5G, there is the, uh, I mean, it could be, I just don't know enough technically to know whether it is the case that it's possible to use that as a spying infrastructure without our being able to detect it. Apparently there is this distinctive, this modern phenomenon where switching networks are updated via software. So in principle, they, I don't know, but, but I, I have, I do have suspicions that that is not the actual motivation for, uh, for trying to squash Huawei, which has gone well beyond right. that, by the way, not letting them sell their smartphones here. Yeah. I think it's exactly not letting them sell. And again, I think it does reflect a broader, uh, again, it, it is an imperialist, you know, racist, whatever attitude that, you know, yeah, China is, th- this was the plan. They were going to produce yeah. nationally competitive companies. They were going to do foreign policy. And I think a lot of people did. Again, they felt comfortable with, we go and we have bilateral meetings and we lecture them on human rights and then they open up their sweatshops for us. And that isn't the same thing anymore. Uh, and look, if Belt and Road is such a brilliant world dominating strategy, then outbid them. Like, like go to these African countries and say, we'll give you 10, per, a 10% better deal. We want to build your dam. I don't think it Absolutely. is such a brilliant idea that we should really spend a lot of money on it personally. Right. It, it engenders a lot of backlash sometimes locally. It, it has all yep. kinds of problems, but yep. 
But anyway, the uh, I want to yep. quickly give you a chance to elaborate on one thing, uh, lest people uh, complain about it in the comments section. I think you said something about uh, America's human rights record. I don't know. Did you say it was worse than China's by virtue of our large footprint? If you didn't yeah, say that, I, correct me. If you did, you should. Yeah, elaborate. I think I said. I think I said. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the in my worldview, the kind of you know the the toll of U.S. foreign policy from interventionism in Latin America to I mean, my God, diverting ventilators from going to you know Barbados, something I've been covering a lot of my show to uh, you know various efforts in the Middle East, whether we're talking about Syria or escalating sanctions against Iran during uh, COVID. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think that if you want to understand internationally what, and then the World Bank and IMF, if you understand them as some extension of U.S. foreign policy and how that develops, affects countries' development goals, yes, I think the United States does generally in the main have a very bad human rights record. Now, I will stipulate one thing. I think that it, I think human rights discourses are very much up in the air, not the substance of human rights, but what they've actually been used for and how they're deployed in the world. It seems to me that the primary legacies have been the disaster of humanitarian interventionism and international law, which I don't want to jettison, but has obviously not been consistently applied. But I will say this, I think, and people on the left at times don't like this, I think it is just as I can say that China can achieve certain things in foreign policy, I think by frankly at times being a lot more flexible and putting countries through a lot less bullshit than the United States or its Western partners bureaucratically. I think on the flip side that when you have the world's dominant superpower that for all of its innate enormous hypocrisy still has discursive openings on ideas of human rights even if it's fake, that gives an opening for people to operate in the periphery. And I think when you start having rising powers that say, well, fuck all that, 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 that does actually close off some very important discursive venues. So I, you know, I, I think that that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. So, well, we should uh, probably yeah. call it, we should, we should allude again to your book. Uh, and encourage people to buy it against the web, a cosmopolitan answer to the new right. Uh, anything else you want to say about the book or about anything we've, um, we've said? Well, I think you're a pretty tough critic, Bob, and you seem to enjoy it, so that's good. I did enjoy it. You know, I was, uh, I was listening to a robot read it from a PDF. Oh, wow. And her, her, her pronunciations of things kept me, uh, you know, I mean, the book, the, the narrative power of the book would have done it on its own, but she definitely kept, kept me paying attention. For example, you've heard of Eugene the Fifth Debs? Yes. Eugene the Fifth Debs. Eugene the Fifth. <laughs> That's, That's great. That what, was, else, what else? What else? Yeah. She must have had an interesting time with Cabral. Uh, I forget. Uh, yeah. Other, other, just, just common words. Deaths. I like yeah, that. Yeah. No, the software is like, I, I don't think they've upgraded in, in a while. I think, um, uh, but, but anyway, it's, yeah. yeah. So check out the book and I, I would strongly encourage if you, I, I, I'm a big, you know, buy it at a local bookstore. Uh, I, I'm, I would make that pitch to you. If you, could get, if, you can, if your governor lets you go to one. Well, you can go to Indie Bound. 
and put oh, in your okay, zip code. That's the web, and, the web manifestation of the independent bookstores, right? Or you can go to Red Emma's, who a friend of mine works there in Baltimore, and I've been pushing people there because they're a, they're a great collectively owned bookshop in Baltimore. And actually, he told me that people buying this book has been pretty helpful during the quarantine. So go to Red Emma's if you can, and of course, check out the Michael Brooks show. And uh, and I look forward to I, I really look forward to our next conversation on my show because I, I want to uh, I think especially when we talk about the foreign policy stuff that the that there we have our goals and our aspirations and our commitments those are very important but there really needs to be a lot more kind of balls and strikes conversations about how this stuff actually works and where we're actually hurtling particularly in a time that's so dangerous with regards to China. Yeah, absolutely. Now I look forward to, uh, I look, I look forward to being in your esteemed venue. And, and, uh, and thanks for showing up in my less esteemed venue. Good luck oh, with please. the book. We'll talk, we'll talk soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks a million, Bob.